I, um, <clears throat> after, after giving a lot of thought to it, uh, decided not to have any PowerPoint this morning. It's been, uh, it's been a long time since I didn't do a PowerPoint, and I will go back to doing a PowerPoint, I'm sure, next Sunday. But it seemed, it just seemed right, given what I'm going to share today, to just not have anything going on here. If you want to take notes, you'll have to just write down what you hear. And I'm, I'm asking you to stay as engaged as possible. Now, I, some of you may be saying, I would have been more engaged if you had done a PowerPoint. I, that helps me focus. Um, <clears throat> but for a variety of reasons, I just thought, you know what, let's set aside. Um, uh, technology is a great tool, but it's not something that we have to be dependent on all the time. So let's, uh, let's, today, let's today go without a PowerPoint and let's just focus uh, together on God's Word. Last week we began a new series of messages entitled Encounters with Jesus. We're focusing on the Bible accounts of people who met Christ. And so last week we considered the woman who was caught in adultery. It's a powerful story. Um, and, and, and when I use the word story, I don't mean fiction. I mean it's an account of an actual event, okay? So it's, a, it's, a, it's recounted to us in story form. But it's a remarkable account of this woman who met Jesus after having been caught in adultery. And the interaction that takes place there is powerful. This week, I want to consider a very different kind of person. Certainly, the portrayal of the kind of person we're going to look at this morning from Scripture is one who would have considered himself very different from the woman caught in adultery. And in fact, uh, in Jesus' telling of parables, he, he gives a parable about um, a person much like the one we're going to look at this morning who proclaimed very loudly how different he was from the sinners around him. I'd like to ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, and I want to read the first 16 verses. John chapter 3, the first 16 verses. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel? Do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak that which we know, 
and bear witness of that which we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We have to begin with a couple of pieces of background information so that we can, um, as well as possible, understand the interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus. So let's consider, first of all, Nicodemus for just a minute. What do we know about Nicodemus from Scripture? Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin. That's why he's referred to as a ruler, a ruler of Israel. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the highest Jewish body of government during Jesus' time. Remember that, that Israel, that the, the people of God, were under Roman rule during the time that Jesus was on earth. So their self-government was extremely limited. They had a self, they, they had a, 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 uh, uh, a ruling body. The highest body the Jewish people had of government was this group called the Sanhedrin. And Nicodemus was a member of that group. Hence, he was referred to as a ruler in Israel. Um, he appears three times in, uh, in the Gospel of John. He appears three times. The first time is the one we just read here in John chapter 3. It's the only time of the three he appears in Scripture that we read about him interacting with Jesus. This is the one conversation, as far as we know, that he had with Jesus. The one time that he met Jesus face to face and spoke with Jesus. If he ever did another time, we don't know about it. This is the only one of the three. We know that from this account, he met with Jesus by night, but we're not told why. Of course, there's a lot of supposition that has been uh, offered uh, as to the reason why Nicodemus met with Jesus by night. It may very well have been only the, just a matter of convenience. That was the time he had available. But many have believed that it may have been because of the, the opposition to Jesus in his day would have made it undesirable for a ruler of the Jews uh, to be seen with Jesus. And so if he was going to do a little personal investigative work into who this man was, he may have considered it advisable to do it at a time when no one would know about it, when it would be kind of undercover. Whatever the reason was, he met with Jesus in this, in this instance by night. The second time that we see Nicodemus appear on the scene is in John chapter 7, verses 50 through 52. In John 7, the, the, uh, uh, presumably it's a meeting of the Sanhedrin. And the, the Sanhedrin has, has met and they're discussing the problem of Jesus. They're discussing what to do about Jesus. And, and the overwhelming sentiment in the place of meeting was one of opposition to Jesus. It was 
one of disbelief. It was one of, what are we going to do to manage this situation? And Nicodemus has the courage in that environment to speak up and to say, our law doesn't judge a man without having heard him, without having tried him. And so he, he kind of advocates for Jesus. In, in other words, uh, in our modern terms, he would be saying something like, well, he's innocent until proven guilty, right? You can't just, just without having tried him, you can't just proclaim him guilty of anything. You can't just oppose him when we've had no trial to find out what, what he would say for himself. How would he defend himself? And so Nicodemus speaks up on Jesus' behalf in a place where to do so might very well have cost him something, right? And so if he did appear uh, in John chapter 3 with Jesus at night out of fear, he seems to have kind of gotten over some of that by the time he gets to John chapter 7. Or at least he's been impacted by Jesus enough to be willing to run the risk of, of advocating for him on some level. The third time we see Nicodemus mentioned is in John chapter 19, verse 39, where it's mentioned that after Jesus' death, Nicodemus took myrrh and aloes to aid in the preparation of Jesus' body. And in this, we seem to have an indication of Nicodemus' personal allegiance to Jesus. Right? He's defended him publicly. Now Jesus is dead. And, and to what degree had Nicodemus come to faith in Christ? Well, it's not entirely clear. But at the very least, what we see is Nicodemus expressing some level of affection, some level of affinity, of, of devotion to Jesus. And wanting to make a, 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 a parting expression of appreciation for Jesus. And so he contributes to Jesus' burial. Nicodemus was clearly drawn to Jesus. Maybe he was a believer by the end of Jesus' life. We're not certain. I'd kind of like to think that he was. The second thing that we need to consider beyond Nicodemus is the group that we're told he was a part of. Yes, he was a ruler. We've touched on the Sanhedrin, but we're also told that he was a Pharisee. So, uh, thumbs up, thumbs down on the Pharisees, real quickly. Fans of the Pharisees? Critics of the Pharisees? Come on! What do we, we can't, we can't vote except if it's a secret ballot? Is that the only way we can do this? Okay. You know, the, the, the Pharisees had a lot of good stuff about them. They were on track in a lot of ways. In many respects, they were kind of the orthodox people of their day. Um, in fact, um, if you're interested... Uh, a, a guy by the name of Tom Hovestall wrote a book called Extreme Righteousness in which he offers the possibility that the Pharisees may be the best biblical counterpart to evangelical Christianity that we have. I know that catches a lot of people off guard and it's not a pleasant thought to think about because of how 
vehemently Jesus rebuked them. But he makes a pretty good case, and I think it's worth considering that we might reflect the Pharisees in some respects more than we would like to admit that we do. Well, well, I'll, I'll leave it at that for now. So let me just give you a little background on the Pharisees. There were three primary Jewish religious sects, three of them. The Essenes was the first. They were a group of people who were ascetics. What do I mean by ascetics? It means that they renounced the pleasures of what was then modern life. They, they lived a very strict, disciplined, regimented life. Um, they formed cloistered communities in out-of-the-way places where they wouldn't be uh, interacting with the masses of people. Their, their uh, doctrine was one that, that believed that they needed uh, some degree of isolation in order to stay pure uh, because of the degeneration of their day. So they, they separated themselves from others and, and lived in groups isolated from the larger society. That was the Essenes. The Sadducees were the second group. And we hear, uh, we hear less about them in Scripture than the Pharisees, but we do hear some about the Sadducees. The Sadducees did not accept the tradition of the elders as the Pharisees did. They did not accept the tradition of the elders as the Pharisees did. And so in that sense, they might have had a little bit of a leg up on the Pharisees in terms of, of um, uh, well, they just claimed allegiance to the, to the biblical text, right? They were committed to the Old Testament. Ironically, despite not believing in the, in the tradition of the elders, they actually believed more wrong doctrine than the, than the Pharisees did while claiming to be adherents to Old Testament scriptures. They did not believe, for example, in a resurrection. They did not believe in an afterlife. They did not believe in angels or spirits. They didn't believe in any of those. So, in one sense, they said, well, we're not going to add to scripture. We're not, we're not going to be adherents to the tradition of the elders, which was a whole volume of work that had been done over the years by Jewish teachers uh, kind of expo uh, expositing the Old Testament scriptures and working out, well, what would it mean to not work on the Sabbath and coming up with all sorts of kind of application of the law to practical life, right? Now, we're not going to go into that. But they had ended up in some wrong places doctrinally despite their proclamation of adherence to the Old Testament scriptures. The Pharisees were the third group, and they were, they were uh, maybe one way to say it that we could relate to would be, they were the strict conservatives of their day. Yes, they did accept the traditions of the elders. Uh, in fact, they were staunch supporters of upholding the, the logic of the elders, the, the work that the elders had done in explaining the law and applying it to everybody's life. They upheld the scriptures, but they also upheld the tradition of the elders. But in some ways, 
they were, they were, uh, there were some things about them that were commendable in their day. For example, they resisted the Hellenization of their culture. They didn't want to get absorbed by Greek culture. They said, we're Jews. We are going to remain Hebrews. That's who we are. We're going to keep our identity. We're not going to let ourselves be absorbed by this culture. Just because we live under Roman rule doesn't mean we have to be absorbed by the culture around us. We are going to remain distinct as a people and as a people of God. And you have to say, hey, kudos to them for that, right? It was, it was a, a courageous thing to do and, and, uh, um, uh, and in many respects a right thing for them to do. They resisted the Hellenization of Jewish culture. They also demanded strict obedience to Mosaic law. And, and they, had, they had a lot that was right about them doctrinally. Unlike the Sadducees, they did believe in a resurrection of the dead. They did believe in an afterlife. They did believe in angels and in spirits. But they had a pretty massive problem. And that was that they, that they, they believed at least in the way they implemented their religion, that grace was given only to those who kept the law. And so they equated these two things. If you are going to be accepted by God, you must keep the whole law. Well, we know what kind of a proposition that is. But, but that's how they viewed life. You can only gain by God's favor by keeping the law, by being law keepers. And as a result, their religion tended to, be, to end up being focused largely on living out the right behaviors. Disciplined, obedient, right? They were going to do what the law said to do. But so often what we see in the Pharisees is that with all their technical endeavors to obey the law, they often violated the spirit of the law, and, and very often they neglected to pay attention to the heart matters that the law was really intending to speak to. And so, all too often, they ended up on the wrong side of conversations with Jesus. Right? Jesus was so commonly rebuking them their religion became external, and their behavior ended up being to them more vital than a right heart attitude. Now let me just pause here for a second and just say something that I think we'd better face head on really honestly for a second. Heart religion is scary. And this is where I think many of us would have to at least on some levels relate to the Pharisees. It's easier to teach our children behaviors than it is to address hard attitudes and leave the particulars and the way it gets worked out in life alone. It's a lot, it's a lot easier to fellowship with other people that all share the same behaviors that you share than it is to give everyone the freedom to live a, a sincere heart religion before God if it means that the differences among us make us uncomfortable. 
It's, it's nice when everybody has to adhere to the standard. It's convenient. It's predictable. It's enforceable. And in that, it's comfortable. Heart religion is dangerous. It's dangerous, right? You don't know for certain what somebody's going to do with that. And listen to this. It's, it's so challenging because you end up sometimes with people who are proclaiming that what they are doing and living is to the glory of God, and yet you might find yourself vehemently disagreeing with what they're doing and wondering, how could anybody do that to the glory of God? And now what you're involved in is questioning the sincerity of their heart. And, and man, listen, it's challenging to live in heart religion. It's challenging. Challenging to stay there. And please hear this. We need to remind ourselves. We need to remind ourselves that we human beings are really good at talking ourselves into and out of things. We're good at it. We're good at convincing ourselves that what we're doing is acceptable because. To live with your heart exposed to God takes, well, takes a lot of courage, takes a lot of sincerity, takes a lot of humility, takes a lot of willingness, takes, it just takes a lot. Just takes a lot. To be willing to say, Spirit of God, descend upon my heart. Wean it from earth. What would that mean? Through all its pulses move. Right? To, to live with your heart exposed to God is not an easy place to live. And we've all, listen, we've all had the times where we've had people that have proclaimed to be doing that, and yet because of what we've seen, we've had questions. We've questioned it. What to do about it is, is man, it's, it's tough. How to live out things like church discipline is really hard. It takes a lot of crying out to God and saying, God, I'm not smart enough to discern this thing for myself. I need your Holy Spirit to speak to me. We need your Holy Spirit to speak to us. Being willing to expose ourselves to, I actually do need brothers and sisters around me to bounce things off of because I don't trust my heart in isolation from everybody else's to figure everything out on my own. And to willingly... Refuse to hide behind, it's a heart religion, I'll do it myself. And say, it's a heart religion, I need you. It's tough. It's tough. It's just easier to have everything laid out, cut and dry for us. But that's not what New Testament Christianity is. Jesus was constantly confronting the Pharisees with the problem of, you've got it all figured out. You've got it so figured out that you've 
figured out the role of the Holy Spirit. You don't need any further guidance. You don't need any further instruction. You don't even need to honestly face yourself anymore because you've got it all neatly packaged, cut and dry. You know exactly what you're supposed to do and when you're supposed to do it. That was what he came up against. It was that spirit that he came up against. So this is the person that we're dealing with. Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, a member of the Sanhedrin, a Pharisee, part of that group. A group of people that considered themselves the religiously correct conservatives of their day. Notice that in this interview with Jesus, Nicodemus speaks three times. And then Jesus responds three times. It's almost like the Bible is set up to make preachers do this. Just so we can get a reputation for being obsessed with the number three or something. Anyways, he speaks to Jesus three times. The first time he speaks, he proclaims what he knows. The second time he speaks, he asks, how? And the third time he speaks, he asks again, how? It's just interesting how this, how this happens. So let's look at what Nicodemus leads with. In John 3, verses 2 and 3, we read this. The first exchange. The first exchange. This man, Nicodemus, came to him by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know. There it is. Here's what we know. Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. I think if he'd have had a full representation of the Pharisees with him, there might have been some differences of opinion over that. But this is what he leads with. We know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now what's happening in this interaction Nicodemus leads with what he knows, and Jesus responds with what, Nicodemus, with what Nicodemus needs. You tell me what you know, I'll tell you what you need. We know you're a teacher sent from God. You need to be born again. Now, listen, if we just take it at its most simple form, the, the comparison of what Nicodemus says to what, to what Jesus answers is full of meaning. Let's just face this first of all. Jesus does not curry favor of the rich and powerful in his life. He doesn't look at Nicodemus and say, here's a ruler of the Jews. I wonder how he could help my ministry. Boy, I will, I will make sure I stay on his good side. We're going to have a very polite conversation that we make sure is non-offensive. No, Nicodemus, despite his position, despite his power, Jesus just looks at him and listen to this. He goes, his intention, Jesus' intention is not to be rude in this, but, but let's face this. It would, Jesus would not have loved Nicodemus well if he had not spoken to the need in Nicodemus' life. He didn't do it rudely. He did do it plainly. 
You need to be born again. You need to be born again. He speaks straight to the need in Nicodemus' life. He goes right past positions and titles and potential resources. And he just speaks to the need of the man that is present before him. Jesus doesn't allow human praise to puff him up so that he politely chooses not to identify the need of the man that's sitting right in front of him. No, there's none of that. But it's more than that. It's more than that. Listen to this. What we need to see above all else in Jesus' response is, that, is this. That, that when Nicodemus leads with, we know, and Jesus responds with, you need, what's happening is a classic interaction between God and man. Men who are so self-confident and secure in themselves and convinced about what they know and who they are. And God speaking to them saying, you have no idea how much you need. Listen to this. The basic thing that's going on is a revelation of how self-oriented all of us are. How self-oriented human beings are. We, we are, listen, the contrast of what Jesus does Jesus' response refuses self-promotion. It refuses self-interest. It refuses self-protection. Well, if I, got a, if I got a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin on my side, maybe I could get away with less opposition during my ministry. Jesus doesn't, doesn't take a self-interested position in this conversation at all. He completely ignores any benefit to himself. By contrast, Nicodemus is like, we know. Proclaiming what, what, what I can offer to you. What I can offer of my information. Jesus' response exposes the self-assurance of this man to the reality of his need. Forget about what you know. It's not important what you know. What's important is you to realize what you need. It's a, it's a remarkable switch that Jesus uh, takes Nicodemus on. Nicodemus was self-confident. Jesus shakes Nicodemus' self-assuredness. Nicodemus starts with, we know, but from there on out, he's left with only, how? Now I've got questions. I'll stop telling you what I know and I'll ask you to tell me what I don't understand. The second exchange is in John 3, verse 4. Nicodemus says to him, How can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, 
but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Um, before I explain the exchange a minute, let me just step aside and make a, make a quick observation on the song that we sang this morning. How many of you were familiar with that hymn, Spirit of God, Descend Upon My Heart? How many of you were, were familiar with that hymn? Can I just ask how many of you had never heard that hymn before? Wow, okay, okay. So, you know, when, when, uh, when in a fellowship you prepare a song service and you select a song like Spirit of God Descend Upon My Heart, one thing you know about yourself that you're exposing to people is that you're not really trying to be the hippest, coolest person around. Am I right or am I right? Okay? So we know that about ourselves, right? We, there's there's got to be something else going on here. But it's an interesting hymn. And theologians have actually debated the question, is it appropriate to pray to the Holy Spirit? Is it appropriate to sing to the Holy Spirit? Why, why has that question been asked? The reason is there's not an example of it in Scripture. That's actually kind of significant, right? There's not an example of that in Scripture. On the other hand, the response is equally significant. The, the, the other side of that is the Holy Spirit is fully God. And everything that is said about God the Father in terms of His deity is said of the Holy Spirit in Scripture as well. Therefore, if the Spirit of God is God, then it's perfectly legitimate to pray to Him or to worship Him. And so back and forth it goes. Now, let me just pause here and say this. On one hand, there's a lot of people that might might, I don't know, maybe even some senses rightly crinkle up their noses and say, man, you preachers and you theologians, you sure get yourselves into some goofy messes, don't you? I mean, what is your problem that you care about stuff like that? The other side of it is to say this. You know, very few people have spent a whole lot of time in our day really paying attention to, thinking about, working out, what really is the role of the Holy Spirit in my life? We sing God in three persons, blessed Trinity, but in many respects, the Holy Spirit is the unknown member of the Trinity. We can relate to the Father, if nothing else, because of the term, the Father. The Son, well, Jesus gets a lot of attention, and we focus on Him through the Gospels very well. But the role of the Holy Spirit, the role of the Holy Spirit is not so clear. And people start getting squirmy when you talk about this because they equate the Holy Spirit with a whole lot of relativism. Well, man, you just throw it under the umbrella of the Lord led me, the Holy Spirit said to me. And man, anything flies when that starts happening. And listen, we've got to admit that some really unbiblical, goofy things have been done in the name of the Holy Spirit led me. 
But I got to tell you something. When you throw the baby out with the bathwater, you're deficient in your Christianity now. I got nods the first thing I said. When I said people have done some really goofball-y things claiming that the Holy Spirit told them, I saw a lot of this. When I said you throw the baby out with the bathwater, you're deficient, there was a lot of stillness. Listen, we need a little discomfort in our lives. We need to be able to admit some things about ourselves. The role of the Holy Spirit is one that many believers have a very kind of awkward idea of. It's not simplistic. It's tied up with, what does it mean to have a personal relationship with God? What does it mean to, to, to walk? How much can we know Him as a person if He's not embodied like the people I know, me, I know around me are? There's a lot about it that's not easy to sort through. But listen to this. In this exchange, here's essentially what Jesus says to Nicodemus. He says, notice this, Nicodemus' question to Jesus is very literalistic. It's a very rational approach to life. He hears about you must be born again, and the only thing he can think of is something really literal. How do you get back inside your mom's belly? She's like, are you kidding me? Right? That's the kind of spiritless religion that people fall into when they, when they get into a place that everything has to be totally explainable. When all the mystery is gone. Right? The only thing you can think of is in literal terms. Well, how do I get back into my mom's belly? Who could do that again? Jesus essentially isn't very politely, oh my word. Really? Right? You know what? Jesus' answer emphasizes to Nicodemus the role, the active role of the Holy Spirit. And he makes it clear that there's an element to this that is not definable by us. He blows where he wants. He's like the wind. Let me give you an analogy. It is possible to definitely sense his influence while not being able to see it. You know what Jesus is doing? He's going straight to the heart of a Pharisee who has lost the intangible sense of his faith and has everything figured out in behaviors and in rules. And he's saying, you've forgotten there's something way beyond a walk with God than just obediently keeping a set of rules. You have left out the influence of the Holy Spirit. You've left out the intangible. It's a powerful statement Jesus makes. Listen, it goes beyond that. God's, listen, Jesus, when he says this, he is talking about, go ahead, get it out of your systems for a second. I'm watching there. You might just get it. God bless you. Sorry. 
The first two were children. <laughs> I, Jacob, you're the only person I'd have done that with. Love you to death, man. You're the best. Jacob and I are going to play some chess together soon. Um, uh, listen, it goes beyond, it goes just beyond him saying there's, there's something intangible here. Because Jesus is ta also talking about something transformational. He's saying you've got to understand that, that the thing about this faith is it's not about literally getting back into your mom's belly. It's about a way that God wants to transform your whole being. That the Spirit of God wants to come inside of you and make of you a new person. There's a, there's a whole new life orientation that God wants to build into you. Nicodemus had missed that, right? And so Jesus' Jesus's response demands a, listen, a, a forget the what you know, submit to the thing you don't understand right now, to submit to, to a work, to, a, to a, a, a purposeful, convincing spirit that wants to transform your life. You have to give him a place in your life. And there are times when he will ask you to do things and bring conviction to you in areas or give you freedoms in areas that don't make sense to you or the people around you. But you had better obey no matter what he tells you to do. Right? Now listen, all the caveats in the world. Don't come to me and tell me the Holy Spirit told you if it's directly contrary to Scripture. I'm just going to look at you and say you're wrong. Okay? We're not talking about that. But we're talking about this. We're talking about the fact that there is a Spirit of God who knows you intimately and knows what you need. And if we let him, he'll put his finger on us. And he'll make us squirm like we've never squirmed before. But in the process, he will transform us into the image of Christ. And that's what he's after. That's what he's after. He wants to make us like like the Son of God. So the third exchange goes like this. Nicodemus answered and says to him, how can these things be? Each, each, each time Nicodemus speaks, it gets a little shorter. Now he's just, how can these things be? How can these things be? Nicodemus' question in verse 9 doesn't expose much beyond just the question, How? So we don't really know what's going on in Nicodemus' mind besides, how can these things be? But once again, Jesus' answer says a lot. Notice how Jesus answers in verse 11 through, 15, 11 through 13. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak that which we know and bear witness of that which we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. Notice what's going on here. It seems that from Jesus' answer that Nicodemus' question reveals a mind that, that was not only literalistic, it was completely earthbound. It was earthbound because Jesus is saying to him something like, you're not accepting the things I tell you about this earth, but I even want to go beyond that. I want to tell you about things from heaven. But if you won't accept this, how can we get to that? You're, you're stuck questioning what I'm telling you about life down here. 
And I'm telling you, there's way more beyond that that I could tell you about. Way more that I could lead you into. Jesus is calling him to a spiritually heavenly perspective. Jesus is calling Nicodemus to stop questioning about the things he can touch and experience here on this earth and, and to go beyond that to some things that are, that are intangible in, in, in the heavenly realm. And this is one of those things that Paul struggles with as well, trying to tell Christians, don't you know that the things that are unseen are more real than the things that are seen? Right? Please hear this. If there was ever a people that needed to be called back to this, it's us. Because in our modern world, we are all about the physical. We are all about the tangible. So, so let me just take these three interactions before I close quickly and apply them to us today real fast, okay? Because I think the ideas that Jesus is presenting to Nicodemus are ideas that we really need to pay attention to in our day. How does it relate to us? Listen to this. The first interaction was all about Jesus expressing what Nicodemus needed in the face of Nicodemus's self-assured proclamation of what he knew. It was the, man, you need to get over yourself and your self-confidence, and you need to face your need. What does that mean for us? My brothers and sisters, we live in a day of individualism, where everybody thinks they know what they know, where people are in love with their ideas. We live in a day where everything is a personal choice, and there's no room for God to tell us what He commands of us. It's all about us being convinced that we know what's best for ourselves. I mean, that's where it's at as a culture, as a society. We love what we know because we are deeply committed to ourselves. We're deeply committed to ourselves. And we're deeply committed to ourselves because we think way too much about ourselves. We're too confident in ourselves. We need a fresh dose of the voice of God telling us, you people need so much. You need so much. You need so much. Listen, I, I don't mean to get, I almost went over backwards on this stool. That would have been the kicker for the end of this service. A lot of us have gotten kind of familiar with the turning around of that phrase, God bless America, America bless God, right? We've all seen that somewhere along the lines. Now what, it, what it really is a question of is, are we in any position to claim God's blessing anymore? Or do we think too much of ourselves? Do we, is what we really need an infusion of Holy Spirit eye-opening that gets us over our self-confidence 
and gets us back on our knees to cry out, God, wean me from this earth. Or, O great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. Own it all and reign supreme. Conquer every rebel power. Let no vice or sin remain that resists your holy war. Here I am with a heart full of needs. And I need you to descend upon my heart and transform me from the inside out. Listen to this. The first interaction is the supreme anti-self message. You listen to our culture and it will tell you, satisfy yourself, please yourself, indulge yourself. The gospel comes along and says, get over yourself. You're full of need. And I'm the only one that can give you the life that you really need. It's a confronting of this idea in our culture that is so committed to oneself. The second interaction points out to us that we live in a day full of ideologies, of reason. Man, it's got to make sense. I, I want it to be literally true. Right? He's thinking in nothing but literal terms, getting back inside your mom's belly. Listen, it's all up here. It's all got to make sense. It's, it's, it's the glorification of man's reason. I'm not going to get into the, cult, into the history of this, but, but so much of what we glorify, even as Christians, is something that we are unaware came not from Scripture, but from an enlightenment mentality that believes that we human beings can figure it out ourselves. We glorify reason. As if we were so smart, we've forgotten that the Scripture tells us that the natural mind cannot receive the things of the Spirit because the natural mind is contrary to the things of God. That your mind, listen to this, as vital as it is, and and as much as we rightly say that God does not ask you to give up your reason when you become a Christian, but please hear this, we need to be reminded that our ideas need to be submitted to the rule of the Holy Spirit. And I'll tell you what, if there's anything that I see, going, one of the things that I see most powerfully going on in our culture today is people's ideas are so important to them that whether they're right or they're wrong, they will be communicated out from under the power of the Holy Spirit. We come across not governed by the Spirit of God, but wanting to make sure everybody knows what we think. And the the word of Jesus is, yeah, it all makes sense to you. You see things in a very clear, reasonable way. It's all very logical and it's all very literal to you. And I'm trying to tell you that there's another whole realm that you don't get. There's there's the realm of the Spirit behind this that you've got to get a hold of. Listen, how many times have we in our marriages argued with with one another over the literal truths of the words that we have spoken to each other when neither one of us wants to acknowledge that the spirit in which our words were spoken was just nasty? We debate the literalness We debate the truth, 
We debate the accuracy of every word. We would love it if there was a tape recorder so we could prove our point and go back and hit rewind and here's exactly what you said. And we ignore that the whole spirit behind everything is just, man, it's messed up from top to bottom. Because we've fallen into a very technical view of everything. Prove a point. Listen, prove the point is insignificant compared to expose the heart. Win the argument. Great. Jesus kept going to the Pharisees and saying, you've had years of the elders proving points. Here's how it all works out. But your hearts are so far away from me. The hearts are so far away. Here's another way to say it. We glorify information, but we've lost sight of spiritual formation. That God wants to conform us to the image of Christ. And please hear this. It is not a one-for-one -one correspondence that the person who knows the Bible the most acts like Jesus the best. God is interested not in how much you know, but in how much you're conformed. To our day, a day full of impressive discoveries and man glorifying his own intelligence, the Word of God comes back and says, would you let my spirit into the equation here again? Because we, we need some transformation in this whole thing. The last point is Jesus calling Nicodemus to get over the earthly and start considering there's a whole realm of the heavenly that he's never heard anything about. When I hear that, here's what I hear. I hear a man who is earthbound being confronted with the fact of an immaterial truth that is heavenly that he doesn't know anything about. Listen, our day can be described as a materially oriented day. We're materialists. What do I mean by that? Well, in a certain sense, it's true economically. But it's also true just this. We are all about what we can touch. I got I to gotta close, and I don't have a, way, a good way to do this well enough, quickly enough. We have gotten so accustomed to, be able, to being able to fix everything, to being able to... to touch, to rearrange everything, we have become a very materially committed. Listen, let me put it this way. One of the moral problems that we have in our day is that people have learned to view the body as just a machine. It's not the temple of God anymore. So because it's a machine and we can look at a person's hormones, and we can look at a person's chemicals, we can explain their sexual tendencies, then it must be okay if they use their bodies this way. We're, we're doing nothing but looking at the material stuff, and when you do that, you lose the moral value of it. And everything in our culture takes us this way because technology is so powerful and so good at what it does. It's hard to remember that as Christians, we're called to a whole different plane. We're called to a different plane. Your body is, just, is not just a material thing. 
It is a divine temple. It's a divine temple. We have learned to think like scientists and forgotten to learn how to think like psalmists, like worshipers, right? And, and the challenge for us as Christians is, listen, is to not get absorbed in that way of thinking, to not get caught up in it. We, we, we live in a day where matter is what matters, where the physical is what matters. And so we think that because we can, we can understand it or we can rearrange it, we can do with it whatever we like. It's, we're having so many struggles along these lines. Listen to this. I, maybe I'll get an amen from some parents here. I'll probably get booed by the kids. But, but please hear this. Guys, when your moms and dads try to put some limits on you in the, in the realm of technology, just thank them for it. Because they're trying to keep you sane in, in, a, in a world that is trying to figure out a whole different way to exist than what God created us as human beings to exist as. I'm not saying don't use technology. I'm saying this, that as Christians, we step back, we look at the tools that this world provides for us, and we say, we'll use them, but we will not abuse them. Because this world sees them in a certain way, but as Christians, we've got a different perspective. We don't just see the physical stuff. We see a spiritual reality, and we've got to relate to that. Nicodemus was being called to a higher perspective. I think in our day, that is desperately needed. Man, I wish I had more time to go through the last one and explain it better. Think about it a little bit. Consider it a little bit. And may God give us understanding. So I want to close this way this morning. I want to ask if our musicians would just come back. We're going to take three or four minutes and we'll close in prayer. I just want our musicians to come back and play that hymn softly, Spirit of God, descend upon my heart. We're going to close with just a moment here to respond in this way. In reality, I, I, I'm asking you to indulge me in some repetitiveness that I asked you to respond this way last week as well. It's really a call not to let ourselves get caught up in the spirit of our day. We as God's people, we as God's people must be able to transcend the spirit of our day. We can't let us sink it, we can't let it sink us down into it, absorb us, tell us what we're going to be, what we're going to do. We respond to someone higher. This world is loud, it's demanding, it's forceful, it's pushing itself in to the way we view the world. I have found myself having, at times, debates with people over the technicalities of Scripture and just stepping back and going, can't we see the obvious that in trying to win an argument about some fine point of the meaning of a, of a, of a Greek, Greek verb tense, we're missing the spirit of what God's trying to say to us here. Can we just get back to a real heart religion 
As uncomfortable as it is, it's where God wants us to be. And listen to this, it's where his spirit moves. If we're honest, it's where his spirit will move. Yeah, I'm I'm calling us to consider the role of the Holy Spirit and the possibility that we don't have it all figured out and that we really do need him and that he wants to transform us, get us over ourselves, move us to a different plane of being in this day. We are going to be called by God's Spirit to be a distinct people. That's going to mean not being absorbed by the thinking of our day. Getting ourselves oriented to the ways of God again. Being a people of the Spirit and of the Word. May the Lord help us to do that. I don't know how else. Just let me ask you just to bow. Just put your heart before the Lord and say, Lord, what do you want to speak to me in this time? Invite the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart in whatever way he would see fit today. And we'll close in prayer in two minutes.